Good morning, good afternoon, good night. It's Xavi. If you know me, I'm happy you're here. If you don't, I converted a moving truck into a tiny home amidst the pandemic, gave up my place, and hit the road. Starting in Vancouver, I drove to Miami and realized that there was too much adventure not to share. So to fill you in on my journey, the Play On Foundation presents the Two Degrees Podcast. Why two degrees? Because I'm now a snowbird and escaping two degree weather. I built the truck wrong and the majority of the weight is on the passenger side, so we're tilted at two degrees. But also, I'm going to catch up with industry professionals who I'm glad to call friends and bring you two degrees of separation away from them and what they do. So, welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Playon Foundation for Neurological Research and Brain Aneurysm Detection and Prevention. To learn more about the Playon Foundation, check out www.letsplayon.org. But for now, enjoy the show. But first, a quick word. Do you like mangoes? <laughs> of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees Podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit, illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Today's guest, I had the pleasure of meeting him all the way back at least over a decade ago um, when I started acting, maybe a decade ago. Um, and more than more than and he was in my acting class and then he absolutely took over like the hosting scene in Toronto and it's funny because like I also tried to apply for much music and as as a host there it didn't work and for Bell Media and then I decided okay I guess I just gotta be an actor <laughs> and take this you know take what I learned and, and go that direction. But this gentleman right here just wowed me in, in regards to all the the on-screen time that he's had with the professional players that he's been around. So everybody, Akil Augustine, how are you doing? Thank you, Brian. How's, how's your day? Um, well, it's early in my day. Um... I don't really start work till about, well, technically, I don't get on site till about 5.30 doing the Raptors 9.05 game, the last one before All-Star break out in Mississauga, summer of Toronto. But, um, yeah, so it's pretty early, just doing some research, kicking around the crib, you know. Yeah. YouTube. <laughs> it's funny how you say, like, it's early for you, but then I'm on the West Coast, so it's earlier for me. <laughs> True. So... With that, like you're, you, you work so closely with um, the Raptors. I want to start there where, how did you get involved with them? Oh, well, funny story for me, at least. <laughs> it really started when I was working at Foot Locker and um, there's this TV show back in Toronto called NBA XL, which is like, a, I guess like a sneaker culture. Um, I hate the word, but it was like back in the early 2000s. Oh, wait, why do you urban. hate the word? Well, I hate the word urban because it's, you know. Oh, it's, urban. Gotcha. I thought you meant sneaker culture. No, sneaker culture is whatever, man. I mean, sneaker, I don't even know if there's a sneaker culture. Sneaker culture is something that the marketers created too. Like, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. It just, yeah. it's all the branding terms kind of irk me, but whatever. Yeah. Um, well, the um, show was but, really cool because it covered all that stuff. Before you, before you go on, just because like, I don't want to lose that thought, but I also echo that same sentiment, but why – talk to me more about the word urban. Uh, well, first off, it's just black in disguise, right? So that's the first issue. Um, and I think it kind of tries to 
trap a certain aesthetic. So you could package it, market it, which happens with everything. I just think as black people and as people um, who are disenfranchised, we're always sensitive to the marketing of our identity. So, you know, but it happens, right? You can call something bohemian or you can call something gothic, right? So there's terms you can throw on things. But I think we're just still in a sensitive space. And, and it's kind of used yeah. weakly. It's not used well either. Yeah, yeah. No, that's fair. Didn't, but um, yeah, so didn't the Grammys um, take that word out of their categorizations? I hope so. I don't watch none of that stuff. Fair. <laughs> But um, as the story goes, uh, this guy named Cabby, he was a host of that show. And I was working at Foot Locker at the time. And he came in into my store. And like the first time I had met someone, you know, locally who I, I admired who was on screen. So I kind of asked him to be his intern, you know, emailed him for months. And he never got back to me. But um, in a roundabout way, I ended up getting an internship at this magazine, this hip hop magazine. And the producer of his show came in to buy a full page ad and I lied to the producer of his show and told him that Cabby said I could have an internship. So the producer told me to come down to Scarborough to the studios where they shoot the show, showed up, Cabby shows up, he sees me there. He's like, what the hell's going on? I kind of like wink at him, let him know like, you know, I'm trying to get in. He, he rides with the story. And then that's kind of, um, at the time, the rights to NBA content was with Sportsnet, which is one of the major broadcasters like our ESPN. But um, when, the, when the Grizzlies, the Vancouver team shut down, all the rights to the NBA content went to the company that owned the Raptors. So because I was only an intern at that place, it was like a non-compete clause where they couldn't take producers. They took me as the intern to work on a couple of shows, including NBA Excel. So wow. that's kind of how I got in through the back door on some intern stuff. Where did that mentality come from? Of I'm going to, because a lot of people I know when they're applying for work, they're very, they're a little too honest sometimes where oh. I tell them where it's just like, no, just, you know, you gotta, you gotta embellish. You gotta, you gotta get your foot in somehow. Where did that mentality come from for you? Um, I think I'm a big, uh, big movie guy. So when I watch movies, I put myself as a protagonist. So I think I was very practiced in like wanting the opportunity to take a big risk or a big gambler to be in on something that's kind of like uh, high stress. So like to me, it was like, yeah, this is cool. I'm going to like work the situation. And uh, another fact that played into it too was I was actually an illegal immigrant. So I didn't become a Canadian plus 24. So I kind of had been practiced in kind of existing in the margins and doing things that fudging the paperwork or doing whatever. So I was used to that as a kid growing up. So to me, it was nothing but like just get the job done. Yeah, <laughs> I can't wait to to speak on that because um, I had I had no idea that you were working on on a documentary like that, and I think that it is super brilliant um, to highlight that community because, especially in the talk of today's politics, where refugees and and allowing you know people with to come into your country especially considering the the climate of racism it's it's yeah no it's it's well well on you good on you so we're definitely going to get to that but um still talking basketball now um not only are you are you a host um but you you actually like still play you still go hard in the paint and where where did the love of basketball come? Uh, I might I might have to retire soon. I just got a concussion and bruised my optical nerve uh, elbow on a rebound. But um, so growing up, I, I I came to Canada, you know, fairly young without my parents. So I, I grew up without my parents also. So I had a cousin who um, you know, he had just gotten out of jail, and of course, you know, he had just had he had to come to our house to live for uh, I guess my my aunt was his surety. So that was part of his release program was he would have to stay with us, the family. And um, every Thursday night, he would go down to um, Eastern Commerce, which is like, it's not a school anymore, but it was the number one basketball high school in the entire country. Whoa, hold on. And then like down the street from my house was like- school anymore? No, they shut it down. It's actually a native um, education center now. But uh, yeah, um, they tried Eastern to put up a dress code. 
so many people, man. Damn. Yeah, you want to know what did it? What? They they tried to implement a dress code. And oh, the God. students didn't want a dress code. And there were two <laughs> different public schools, uh, Monarch Park and Danforth Collegiate, who didn't have dress codes. So in the last year, there were 30 kids in the school. That's crazy. Because... Yeah, I haven't gone to a Catholic high but, school like dress code normal. So, so that's funny. Yeah, I, I went to a, a, a uniform school, but yeah, my cousin um, we came home. He uh, kept taking me to the gym, and I, I was a I was a rambunctious kid. I didn't do well in school. Uh, I didn't have a lot of family support or emotional support. So once I got inside the basketball court, all 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 the rules were were thrown to the window. I was bouncing off those balls, fighting older kids, doing everything, just going nuts, and I. I fell in love with being in a gym, and to this day, if I have a day off, if I have a couple hours, if I be in the gym, man, I just I'm a bass, I'm a gym rat. Yeah. Now we're getting old, man. So <laughs> what's what's the the after gym remedy for you? Yoga. I've fallen hard into yoga and Pilates. Um, it's just understanding, especially because I originally I played football. Like um, in high school, I was a football player. Um, I just couldn't go anywhere because of my uh, immigration status. But I was a pretty good football player. I played on a really great football team. Um, so basketball was kind of my second sport. But as an adult, you know, I discovered yoga and uh, breath work and those two things it's going to be hard to replace so the testosterone say, kick yoga, are and we, some of the other talking like the the bikram style stretching or we're because i see you do a lot of meditating is that the yoga that you're referring to yeah so I, well i used to do a lot of meditating but now i've transitioned to breath work um i think breath work's been so much more efficient for me but uh so I, I go to this place called Sweat and Tonic, and they've got a whole bunch of different variations of yoga from the um, from the vinyasana to the well, all that stuff. I don't even know how to say it properly, but um, you know, so I do whatever they're doing. But I've just found hot yoga. Um, you know, you work up a, a great sweat, and I think for men, especially as we get older, our hips get real tight, and I got real issues with like activating my glutes and my and my hips. And yoga just directly addresses all that. So it's got me feeling pretty good in my 39th year. Yeah. Yeah. No stretching and, and especially hot yoga, just because, especially for me, I work out just for mobility. I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, reach over something when I'm lying down in bed and then hurt myself. Or like, I don't want to do a functional fit. mobility. Exactly. I think that's where, where fitness should be at. And, but I personally blame media and society, especially North American society, where they think going to the gym, you have to attain this certain physique where I was heavy into yeah. that mindset. And I think that that needs to change in order to create more balance, especially for mental health. Um, but with that, how did you discover? Yeah, I think it reflects in who we were at the time, though. Yeah, no, for sure. Huh? And how, how did you how did you go about and discover breathwork? Because I think that's amazing. And I think more people need to understand how important your breath really is. Yeah, um, I think, I mean, breathwork is a big part of yoga, meditation, mindfulness, Buddhism. But, but they always just use the word breath, right? And follow your breath. That's kind of where it's been at. I think in the last 20 years, so much research has been done about, you know, nasal breathing and, and, and the effects of, um, you know, a meditation practice, which is a lot of breath work. And I think as we as North Americans, we like to break things down into their smaller parts, right? Where we look at things mechanically, like the world's a machine. And so I think we started to extract a lot of the things out of mind, mindfulness and meditation at work. And one of the things a lot of... Um, these like authors and scientists and social scientists picked up on is you know just breath work and then we've been doing it like from way back when like you know therapists used to tell people breathe and count to 10 right it's been something that's known but now it's like and especially with like high level sport starting to understand how the respiratory system affects recovery and performance i think as all of this information rises i think then like i kind of with my like YouTube habits, stumbled upon a lot of information about this stuff. And 
And um, I think it was Joe Dispenza who really brought it home. He's, um, I don't know, a lot of people think he's like a pseudoscientist. He's an author. He was a chiropractor. He's got a book called, uh, what is the book called? Uh, this, no, I forget. What is his book called? I forget what Joe Dispenza's book yeah. is called, but it digs deep into, you know, a lot of what um, they call psychosomatic healing or, you know, you know, uh, spontaneous um, remissions in certain conditions. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny that you you classify it as a pseudoscience because I recently just read that. Um, but I know some people do. Yeah, but that it's it's funny that they think that. And they laugh at it because, like, um, I read that everything is technically a pseudoscience um, because science is constantly changing. Science is supposed to be law. Science is supposed to be, you know, fact. But then when it changes, that means what we were believing wasn't the fact. So then we have to understand that everything as it evolves is changing. So it can't quite be a science. It has to be a pseudoscience because right now we're just in this state of believing that this is accurate. So. Well, you just hit the nail on the head right there. Science is a faith. Yeah. Yeah. It's actually a faith in the way it's executed and the way it's understood. And most things must be if you understand how reality works. It's not like we're working with a lot of like the base building blocks of the universe and we understand how things are derived that we have some greater grasp of what's going on no it's mostly guesstimates and and hypotheses that we're acting on and those are the same as what the people in the earliest days ran off of when they created the religions of the world right so yeah. i mean you know it's based based on something that appeals to us more so in our rational minds right mm -hmm. where we're at and which speaks to your point earlier that i want to touch on like you know how like for a large long time like we looked at bodybuilding and exercise aesthetics but i think that was a reflection of where we were at as a as a collective in north america and i think as we exhausted the gains of, of aesthetics we kind of discovered something beyond that and that's kind of how it's always going to work same with science right it's like you get to that frontier and then that frontier becomes you know every day and then there's a new frontier after every day do you think then that's going to be the trend or do you hope and i have hopes especially how the trend that I've noticed is the youth of today seem to be picking up on things a lot faster. So I hope that in like 50 years, 100 years, that kids come into the world and they don't seek that, you know, need for the six-pack abs to impress because they just have a better understanding. That's my hope, at least. <laughs> Well, we're confronting a whole new issue now with the metaverse and that a lot of kids, you know, may not even be exercising because now so your body image could be an avatar in the greater sense, more so than the human body. Um, and, then, and, then, and then beyond that, you think about what we're capable to do with genetics and what we're capable to do with, um, you know, biotechnology. Hmm. And the shift may go from, you know, holistic health and healing to, you know, technological improvement of the human through biotechnology, right? So, Damn. you know, again, that's the next frontier, right? Like there's so many, yeah. and then as, as information speeds up, there's splinters and groups, and some groups will end up in the metaverse, some will end up in real life, and some will end up biohacking into biotechnology. And, you know, it, it, it's weird, but we're getting really segmented as we get more powerful, and it's, it's yeah. kind of, it's, it's odd. It, that's and that's just also too like a reflection of how religion happened, where religion happened as this one thing, and then all of a sudden it was like, no, let's just change this thing. And then they'd be like, oh, I want to do this thing and this thing. And then it just the Anglicans right. and the Presbyterians. Yeah, it's so funny too with like Christianity, where there's so many factions of Christianity. It makes me laugh. Where Christianity is no longer that thing that it once was because now it's it's just it's i don't want to say i still adulterated versions of it but it, it yeah i still don't know what the difference is between a catholic and a christian and i'm roman catholic apparently the catholics believe that jesus is god when the christians believe that jesus is the son of god well, how did I, 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 I went to Roman Catholic school. Yeah. And I then, didn't even figure that one out. And then the belief of Mother Mary being holy, where 
Christians don't really see her as reverend as Catholics do. Uh, see, look, even even that division is ridiculous to me. Yeah, and then even, um, pro- and then I think like the difference with like Protestants is the Protestants are the ones that speak in tongues, and and they want divorce. <laughs> they want divorce, and the then, king wanted his divorce. Um, Baptists, I think Baptists and Seven Day Adventists treat Saturday as their Sabbath. Um, there, yeah, there's just, there's too much. And then I know there's, there's some factions that don't believe in the old Testament. It's just new Testament, which I find hilarious because it's like just the opposite of Judaism where the Judaism will take the old Testament and not really focus on the new Testament. But, um, have you read autobi- um, autobiography of a Yogi? I did a while back. Yeah. Is that um Yogananda? Yeah. Yes. Just, ah, yeah. yeah, that was big. Oh man, there's, a, there's one chapter chapter in there where he describes like his experience in maybe it was the Bardo or something. It was yeah. one of the most beautifully written chapters of I bet like, I gotta go back and read that chapter because yeah. that chapter was mind blowing. Um yeah, when when his his guru like decided to, you know, it's like, all right, you're ready, and then just tapped him on the chest and like he just whew, Awesome Doctor Strange shit. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of, are you are you a fan of the MCU? I mean, I was I was a huge fan of the MCU during the t- the first twenty five films. Okay. Because <laughs> like in the trailer, my my um attention goes towards more of the politics of the MCU where Marvel, when they first started, they weren't doing too well. So they had to sell Spider-Man. They had to sell X-Men and then they kept the rights to Iron Man. But then now with the whole multiverse thing and the MCU. They didn't keep the rights to, to Iron Man. Ain't nobody want Iron Man. Iron Man was shit. <laughs> Who is Iron Man? <laughs> but then, and, and then in Doctor Strange 2, well, I guess they they started it in WandaVision when they incorporated Pietro, but then they're bringing X Men characters into the MCU, and I'm 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 so happy to because I think there I heard I know I heard Patrick Stewart's voice. Yeah, he's in the trailer. Yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a couple of interesting angles they're playing with that. They, they believe there's one theory that Ag- Agatha Harkness, one of the characters. From um, one division, yeah. she's got her own series out called House of Harkness. Yeah, and uh, if you're a fan of the comic books, you know that House of M is the comic where Wanda snaps all of the mutants out of existence. So some people think they're gonna do like a House of M, but a House of uh, oh, What's Her Face, yeah. and have a snap of the mutants into the main MCU. Others believe that it's through the multiverse that we'll get MC, uh, the X-Men characters into the plot, some new X-Men characters, but because of the multiverse, you'll get maybe some old, like currently casted type um, characters. I'm excited. I'm I'm not it's getting as... really big, though. Like, I like, yeah. I really love the Avengers. Uh, I didn't care for the Iron Man movies. I really loved the Avengers when they came together. Yeah. I yeah. thought that was the that was the best. Shit. And then as they built that out, um, but now it's like, it's just the scope is so big. It's hard to keep someone's interest when, like, you've gone from, like, okay, we got 10 characters to 500 characters. Yeah where it went from age of ultron where you had them assemble to civil war now they're against each other and then i remember like everybody was they had this meme of like what people expected and you had like a big clash in the comics versus what you got where it was just like seven a on parking seven. lot <laughs> a know? parking lot man. and then so it's like and then they grew it <clears throat> to that final but i like how they did it i liked how they did civil war I yeah. thought Civil War was pretty good. 
I oh, think I, I think two of the best two of the best Marvel movies that ex are in existence are Civil War and the second Captain America, the Winter Soldier. That movie was dope mm, AF. Yeah. yeah. Those are two of my favorite Marvel movies of all time, man. Like the Winter AF Soldier on the show. All right. That's, that's, yeah. that's, that's this is me. <laughs> when when Samuel L. Jackson runs into the Winter Soldier in the streets, that is one of the bombest scenes I've ever seen. Like yeah. he came out guns blazing. I and then I oh man, Bucky is Bucky's arc is just fascinating to me. Just because, like, he did a complete 180 from Winter Soldier to living in Wakanda. And he just zenned out. And personally, that's like... Which was my, good. Yeah. Until yeah. he did that stupid Winter Soldier series. Or whatever, the Captain America series. That thing was garbage. You didn't like it? No. Interesting. It was oh. hyper-political. And then all of a yeah. sudden... um. Bucky is like this sweetheart. Like that guy is like one of the coldest killers of all time. It's kind of like what they did with Boba Fett. They just turned Boba Fett into a bumbling idiot. Like I don't know why they do this. They just want everyone to be friendly now. It's like no, those yeah. two guys are master assassins. They should not be, you know, like your happy think, main character. I think that's like the the joy of it is we know that our generation knows that. But then for the new generation, now they have a different outlook. So, like, we're seeing this completely... But they're less cool. They're less memorable now. Like, what made Boba Fett dope was he was just... You didn't see his face. You didn't hear his voice. You didn't know his backstory, but he came to F... Uh, you know? Yeah. No, that's true. Right? And, like, now he's just this old, pudgy dude helping tattoo me or whatever that place is called. No, man. Like, back in the day, Clone Wars was, was my shit. And just seeing like them go to the island the the planet where they were making everybody essentially in the vein or mandalore no um oh you mean um where they built the clones yeah yeah yeah, yeah. is that big water planet yeah that's that's where my head was at and i just oh man and the origin story where jango gets killed and yeah, the, yeah, that Boba Fett show sucked. By the way, I was gonna say that. Uh, I'm excited for the Obi Wan though. I'm an Obi fan. I want them to get into the books more. I want to get into like the, the further out characters. Like, get away from the whole Star Wars we already know. Take the Star Wars world and move it a couple thousand light years into the future, and let's see what happens then. Right? Like, do like an old Republic, but in the future. Yeah, yeah. I have. Fingers crossed. I don't know if you can see it. This is this is my baby right here. This is like a, a show slash series that I'm working on. That's like you have Star Trek and Star Wars. And then have you seen the movie Old Guard with Charlize? Yeah. And sure. then, They're doing so a sequel. I associate Old Guard with like Star Trek in this comparison. So this is Star Wars compared to that. So it's like oh, it's a lot of old dead people coming back. Yeah. So I'm I'm hoping that uh, again, just the ball gets rolling on on a few things, and I can find myself in the room with the right people, and I can share that with them. And are you gonna do like a short first? Like a I want to turn it into a graphic novel first. I want that's that a good idea. idea. Yeah. That's a good idea. So I just I'm currently working on a kids book. And I think I think you'd you'd relate to it as well, but um, and then from that, yeah, we'll see how how what rooms I can enter as a writer. That's that's the goal is is to show people that hey, I'm also a writer because that's been what's what's been your struggle with being able to define yourself professionally. Where for me, I I don't want to call myself a writer. Even though I've written, I haven't gotten paid for it yet. So that's my defining thing is like, because I haven't gotten paid for it yet, I don't want to say that I am it yet. Mm. What's it been like for you? Um, I think like everyone else, it's validation. I think um, a lot of times you lose track of why you're in 
what you're doing. I think for me, I got involved. I'm a, I'm a creator. I'm a storyteller by trade. Whatever that means to other people, I have a pretty clear definition of what it means to me. And I think when I got into the world professionally, I went into basketball because it was one of the few places where a young black man could make strides and be accepted uh, in the way I do carry myself. And I think as I worked in that world, I adopted the success markers of that world. And so I started to get goals that probably weren't in line with the big picture of what I was actually trying to accomplish if I were to step back. So not until like I- I, so you, I, I give me an example? Like wanting to be a play-by-play announcer. Like that's not why I came in here. Like, you know, not wanting to interview players after games is not why I, I started to do this, right? I'm a storyteller. I want to, back when I was younger, telling like a, a Patrick Ewing or a Charles Barkley or a Michael Jordan story was crazy. It was interesting. But I think mm-hmm. as the game in the NBA has gotten more streamlined, the kids get more similar, they all go to prep schools, they all have managers, they all have media controlled. The, the types of stories I was telling weren't really what I wanted to do. And so I started to adopt like, you know, like, oh, you know, I'm doing play by play. Oh, I'm getting this interview. Oh, and, 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 and to say that that was like true markers of success for me, they weren't simply because knowing why I'm in this, I'm a storyteller by trade. So my goal is to um, best communicate the ideas that resonate with me as a person. So as I failed to reach a lot of those markers recently, it sobered me up to realize that like I was striving for things that I didn't want. And so again, Mm. the whole validation thing comes, came full circle because I'm working on this documentary now and the documentary is more about the story I'm telling than it is about anything outside of the act of creating. So there's, there's very little external validation that I seek from making this documentary other than making sure I tell this story correctly and that the way I go about telling the story fits with the models that I built or if not stretches them and allows me to understand it more. And I think thankfully it was, you know, failing at certain things that I want that I thought I wanted that allowed me to kind of take the few steps back, recognize the opportunity I did have to actually just work on creating and creating something without having it need to satisfy any external measures. So that way, at least at the end of this project, I'll know what I can create and not know, oh, what I had to create for this or and it's I achieved the thing I wanted or I got the, you know, no, it's like, look at the thing I made. Now I know what I can make. And we'll be right back after this short message. But in the meantime, don't forget to connect with us on our Instagram at PlayOn2013 and tell us what you think about the show. Do you like mangoes? <laughs> of course you do. And if you don't, well, I'm sure there's a high chance you might know someone who does. Well, the Two Degrees podcast is sponsored by Peeled Fruit. No, not just random fruit that's been peeled, but the children's book about a mother's love language of peeling mango for her baby. Available for delivery on bookbaby.com, bookshop.org, Barnes & Noble, Powell's, and Amazon, just to name a few of the retailers. It even ships worldwide. Check out at Peeled Fruit Book on Instagram for more information on how to get your copy of this heartwarming story. Peeled Fruit. Illustrated by Rhoda Domingo. Now, back to the show. With that, yeah, no, let's 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 dive into it because I'm I'm so curious to know wh- how your voice of a storyteller developed into the voice that's able to tell this documentary. Um, and the documentary is called Undocumented, and it covers. Um, the half million population of Canadians that are undocumented and their, I guess, role and journey and struggles in society well, as undocumented citizens? Well, it focuses on me as um, a representative of what that group can contribute to the country. 
Okay. So, so it's, it's a lot. It's about me, but well, the simple fact of the matter is, not documented person can't stand up and say I'm undocumented. That makes puts them in a position of vulnerability. So you can't get undocumented people to stand up and say, "Hey, I'm undocumented." So there, and 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 the most compelling type of story is a human interest story where you have someone say, "Hey, here I am. Here's an actual human representation of the problem." So if they can't do that, um, then you know I think part of the responsibility falls on people who were undocumented and were able to find their way to becoming Canadian to at least add their story to the pile because you're going to get a lot of stories. Like you think about how you track undocumented people. Like you can easily track them through arrests, right? Um, you know, and, and through um, anything related to the criminal justice system, it's easier to find uh, an undocumented person than any other way. You can't Google undocumented people. You can't find their stories. So if that's the only data set that you have for a group of people, how can you really understand what they represent to a country? And so my goal is to add some anecdotal evidence of like, here is someone who was undocumented and here is their story and what they've been able to do. And hopefully that kind of gives people a clearer picture of what the whole situation is like, right? And, and, and I think that's very important. And I'm not, I'm not here to take a side in, in, in debate on immigration. It's a very sensitive topic. But what I can do is represent a small sliver of the population, which is young children who were brought here without their knowledge, with no control, and who basically grew up Canadian, because that's what I was. I came here at four, my parents left, I was here alone, and I, I was left here. So, you know, at 18 to send me back to Trinidad or to England or somewhere, you know, that would be in my, and in a lot of human beings' opinions, wrong, because I'm pretty much Canadian. So I think there are people out there like that who have the exact same story. And I would like to, when their case gets reviewed, um, when they're considering applying or not, there has to be a story out there as opposed to, you know, rough statistics and the general knowledge of what people think about when they think about an illegal immigrant or an illegal alien, right? Because, yeah. you know, that's just going to weigh against them. What was it like then in, in your world? When did you acknowledge and realize that, shit, I'm undocumented? Well, I mean, my entire life, there was an understanding that I couldn't do what other kids could do. No one openly spoke about it with me. I, 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 I was raised with like a couple aunts and a cousin. And so um, it wasn't a, a household where I got to ask a lot of questions. So I was mm -hmm. kind of on the ask, but I knew something was up. And it wasn't until probably the end of high school because, you know, I couldn't work in high school. I couldn't go on trips or travel. I'd never traveled in my life. I'd never had a job or gone to the doctor. Um, I was lucky enough to get into school. So I kind of figured as high school graduation was coming, like, you know, like something got to give or else I'm going to be selling drugs in like a summer because I, I didn't I have a social insurance number. So it's what te underground telemarketing, selling drugs, construction on the table. Those are the paths that are available to an illegal immigrant or cleaning. Like, so those were my only career paths up until about like I was 17. And luckily I had um, a classmate who's uh father was a former guerrilla in uh, El Salvador. Um, he, he had a crazy life. He was captured and tortured. He was a fundraiser and traveled all throughout Europe, uh, supporting the students when um, the country got thrown into turmoil during like the, the Nicaraguan Contra war when the United States was all up in South America, overthrowing uh, democratically elected officials to support you know, their anti-communist regime. So he came to Canada. He wasn't allowed to practice law, but he did open up a refugee center called the FCJ Refugee Center down on Bravo, down the street from my house. And so I kind of like, I had never told anybody my story because of how vulnerable it makes me, right? Like it was called fucking Children's Aid or called somebody. I'm like, God. So I confided in him the story. And so we concocted a plan and we found a lawyer and we um, filed for humanitarian and compassionate grounds around the time I was 18. It took about a six year process, a lot of money, a lot of court trips, a lot of like, you know, interesting events, but eventually I became a landed immigrant of Canada at around 24. And then is was that Rico? Yeah, that, that was Francisco Rico, man. That's my OG, rest in peace. He actually, 
Um, I never told the story even up until like everyone knows me. Like I never told the stories publicly or anything like that. Only like my closest friends knew, but um, Francisco had always encouraged me to tell the story. Uh, but you know, it makes my family very vulnerable and it's a, it's a very heated debate that like, you know, I'm going to throw myself into um, and put a lot of unnecessary light on myself. So I never really did it, but unfortunately Francisco died earlier this year, not this year, but last year. Um, and uh, I think one of his, one of the, 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 the few wishes that he had of me that I never was able to uh, fulfill was like that I used my story to kind of represent this group. And um, you know, unfortunately he had the pass for me to like, you know, sober up, but um you know, uh, the timing was impeccable that this group of students who was working on this their thesis project at Ryerson University approached me and they're extremely talented group of students. And they, they did their thesis project and I, I watched it and I, I thought that we could do more with it. And so I kind of joined them as an executive producer and kind of steered the project in a new direction. And um, yeah, that's where we're at, man. So then did they approach you for their thesis yeah. or did they just have a similar concept of telling a story of undocumented Canadians? No, they approached me. Um, one of the things I do is I do a lot of youth outreach. So I've always been uh, in the schools. Um, I work with a lot of schools. I work with Boys and Men. I work with Rice University. I work with, uh, you know, Riverdale Technical School. I work with my old high school. name. So I'm in the community a lot. So I think, um, and I do a lot of mentoring with young people. And so there are two kids within the group of students who had had some um, interactions with me throughout the past who are kind of my story resonated with them. And in their great understanding of like, they really wanted a compelling story for their thesis project. They approached me kind of knowing bits and pieces of my story and understanding it would be a good story for them to cut their teeth on and tell. And that's kind of how it happened. Did you have the intent of telling the story through a documentary? Or did you have any plans of maybe a book, maybe, maybe a news article, maybe a blog or something? No, man, I didn't because of my family. Um, mm. I think I think the big thing for me that changed everything was therapy. I entered therapy probably around this time last year. And I uh, had a lot of um, early childhood trauma that I had unpacked. And I think a lot of uh, my maturation had been stunted around certain ages, around a lot of events that I had, uh, you know, experienced. And I think, um, you know, a year and a bit of trauma and a lot of deep work uh, on myself got me to the point where I kind of came to terms with the fact that like you know it is my story and I am a storyteller and as much as it would disappoint whoever it be my mom my dad my sister my uncle for people to know what had happened to me their shame isn't my burden to carry um, and if I feel like I want to be open about my experiences I didn't owe them dishonesty to myself and so i think that was uh the hardest thing was knowing you know i i'm i, I like my family like i have nothing against them and i think um people who watch my story could walk away you know feeling a certain way about what happened to me yeah and i didn't want people to look at my family like they were purposely you know tried to harm me or anything it's just how how things played out yeah that's uh that's a a very difficult part to navigate in somebody's life to kind of understand that their life is their life and and they don't intend to you know bring down the people that came before them type thing but it's not about bringing them down it's it's about the bigger picture where yeah i wonder about that when i see some of these like documentaries mm -hmm. about people and stuff I'm like i wonder how it all played i, I want to see the documentary about how the documentary went down like yeah. what were those conversations like when you told your mom you were going to tell every dark story about your past yeah. and what was her reaction like because that itself is a story yeah the the making of <laughs> undocumented oh yeah now with that as an artist like it's not up to you to decide what change you're gonna create but what is your hopes with this what do you hope is going to change 
Um, I just want to add another stack of paper, piece of paper on the stack. I think I think there's no data. There's no data. So at least to add some anecdotal storytelling to the conversation around a specific set of illegal immigrants, because I don't have the answers. I'm not here to say open the, the, the floodgates. I'm not here to say close the doors either. More, more that, more less that than the other, right? But yeah. um, I am here to say that there's a group of people that are a huge part of the future of this country that can really contribute, specifically young children who were brought here without their knowledge, who grew up in the system. And I think um, we can somehow make the process for those people um, a little more accommodating so that they spend less time in the margins where they can be taken advantage of. Kind of like a, you know, a children's welfare for immigration. So where like we can, you know, I don't know, I don't have the answers and I want to start the conversation and then maybe with this documentary we start the conversation and some more intelligent people than me step up to the plate and come up with some new, whether it's policy or incentive or whatever, you know, we, 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 we at least entertain the conversation. Fair. Now, do you think then you had a, what's, what's, what's a, a way to phrase this, but growing up as undocumented and you said that you missed out on a lot of opportunities that other kids had, where was your mind at? then when you realize that you couldn't do these things that other people were doing? I was hurt and I was angry. Uh, in the beginning, I disassociated a lot. So I suffered from depression at a very early age. Um, so I had the ability to disassociate from my mind and my body, which fed my imagination. So I was a constant daydreamer um, to the point where I would get sick daydreaming. Um, but it was just like, I had to get out of the physical space that I was in. Uh, and I think as I got older, and um, I, I'm very thankful that my cousin brought me around some of the individuals he brought me around who were, you know, some frightening, frightening souls. But I think I had so much anger in me. And because I wasn't in a place where I was either supported or allowed to express my anger, I found ways to intensify everyday actions. And so, you know, people hang out with me, they always end up saying like, that guy does like everything, like, you know, like just, it's a lot. <laughs> like, I've, 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 I've found ways to add energy to small parts of the day. And I think that's how I get a lot of my frustrations out. Cause I'm a very, I'm an easily frustrated individual. And I think that comes from a lot of the energy that I never got to dispel as a child. Can you go into detail and then talk about how you used to deal with your depression into finding therapy into how you deal with things now? Yeah. Um, drugs. God. Meditation was part of it. I would escape into meditation. It's a high-level form of uh, avoidance. Before therapy, that's what you would you'd seek. Yeah, yeah I discovered meditation very early. I used to go to like a Buddhist synagogue at Queen and Ossington back when I was like oh, wow. 19, 20. So I had discovered meditation pretty early because it helped with my depression. Um, but I think I've used everything. Like I use sports to distract myself. I've used marijuana to distract myself. I had a deep spiritual phase where I started doing DMT and LSD and mushrooms. Um, you know, I've, I've used books as a form of escape. Um, I think um, I've channeled a lot of energy to performance. I perform, you know, as a performer. That takes a tremendous amount of energy. So I channeled a lot of my energy to that. So my life was basically one big coping mechanism. I'm not sure that there was ever point or place in my life where I've ever felt safe or that I wasn't on the job in a certain sense. Mm -hmm. You use an interesting word that I kind of want to explore, escape. You use yeah. to escape. Um, what's, your, what's your take now on those methods of escapism? Well, 
so there's this concept that they have called the loyal soldier was birthed out of Japan. Um, after the Japanese dropped a lot of their soldiers in Vietnam during the war, they lost the war. A lot of these soldiers ended up stuck in Japan, in, 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 in um, Vietnam, on islands, cut off for like 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, they started to find them and they brought them home to Japan and they didn't know what to do with them. And you look in stark contrast to what the United States does with their veterans. What Japan did was they started to celebrate them and welcome home. And they had this thing called welcoming home the loyal soldiers. And so some psychotherapists have adopted that idea to welcoming home your loyal soldier. So when I was a kid, I was uh, pretty vulnerable and uh, I wasn't, you know, being taken care of. And so my escaping from my physical environment saved me. Hmm. So I have to recognize that I've been conditioned to escape because that was the right thing to do at that time. Now, I may have outgrown that space where I'm no longer in constant threats. So I don't need that soldier to be of service, but I do have to give him time. So I got to welcome home my loyal soldier. So for me, you know, I tried to like do a lot of things, cold turkey and stuff like that. But I had to understand that like, you know, things have, you know, their season and their reason, their time. Like I had to say a year without alcohol, uh, don't do psychedelics anymore. Not that I'm against them, just I don't have a reason to do them anymore. Um, you know, I'm pretty, you know, I'm pretty good, man. <laughs> I'm doing all right. I still have my, my 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 vices, but they're all things that I can control to a certain extent. <laughs> Fair. Um, I love going into into discussions and details um, with my guests in the world of mental health. Um, how did you go about identifying your depression? Because I still feel like we're in an age where people deny their depression. Um, how did you notice that that was what you were going through? I think as, as the culture recognizes, I recognize it. I will say, too, there was a stretch in my life in my 20s when I was so busy that I wasn't depressed. Hmm. Like, I, there's a stretch in my late 20s where I was so involved. I had a girlfriend. I was working. I was busy. I was, I was really um, involved in life. And it wasn't until I started living by myself. I, had, I broke up with my girlfriend. I moved out from, um, I had shared space with my sister and her husband in a house for a while. We lived together. And it wasn't until I started to spend extended periods uh, alone that start to recognize a lot of these uh, issues and then start to participate in like, you know, drinking alone and stuff like that. And I think that brought back a lot of the childhood demons and those demons would have been there and I probably just would have like, you know, caked over it mm-hmm. and, and, you know, could continue to live a life of, you know, moderate alcohol abuse and ill health. But um, it was probably a blessing that I did get that time to spend by myself to kind of revisit the foundational blocks of my personality and the things that I suffered with. It's, I struggled with, sorry. Mm. Now, with that, um, because there's always like a silver lining and a blessing and everything, what are some blessings that you think were bestowed upon you by being undocumented? Oh, my God. <laughs> everything. It's so weird how like, the, like, I have a saying, and I said this before I even realized um, I was saying it about me. Um, bad things can be good things too. Um, I think because I was undocumented at a very early age, I realized that like it was on me and not just being undocumented, but having no parents. So from about five years old, I was pretty much accountable for how I managed my own emotions, how I managed my time, what expectations were set upon me because there was no singular person that had a direct interest in me as a, as a human being throughout most of my life. So a lot of my accountability comes from me because like, I don't have like someone I talk to on the phone every day, week, month, or whatever. It's just me. Uh, whether that be healthy or not, I think it just bestowed upon me um, this, I don't know, because sometimes I'll talk to people and they have a hard time doing stuff. And like, you know, but I think a lot of times, you know, when, we're, when we grow up, people do things for us and then we start to expect help and we start to expect support and we start to expect kindness and we start to expect 
friendliness and we start to expect. And I think I was robbed of all of those expectations. So I, I can, I, I, I conduct myself pretty with like, you know, I don't need much from people in terms of like, I can work with people who are hostile towards me. Um, I can get the job done in three minutes if it's needed, two minutes if needed. Cause I've been in the situation where it's like, okay, it's, 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 the stakes have been so high that I've had to realize what I'm capable of. For a lot of people, they don't get pushed into a situation where they have to realize I'm capable of all of this. So they're forever running on like, I think this is my max. Where I've been in, you know, yeah. a lot of tough situations. So I've had to figure out exactly what I'm capable of. So now there's an expectation that when shit hits the fan that I can pretty much handle. Hmm. When was the last time you surprised yourself of, oh shit, I can do this? Therapy, man. Damn, that's that's deep. How did you discover therapy? I had a hard time eating. I was um I don't food abuse is a type of thing, but there's definitely Oh, of course it is. I had I had some stuff with food and I I um I tend not to eat. And I had a friend who I got close to with uh, over COVID and she would notice like I would be completely, I wouldn't eat like I'd maybe eat like two pieces of fruit for like two days. She's like, why are you not eating? I was like, I have a hard time getting to eat and convincing myself to eat, to take care of myself and to set time aside. And so and it wasn't even that I was so busy, it was COVID. And so I think the food thing kind of like was the tipping point where I realized, yeah, that's, because no one spends a lot of time with me, I spend a lot of time in isolation, that I don't notice the little weird nuances of my daily routine. And so when she got to spend some extended time with me, she started noticing really weird things about how I conducted myself. And that's one of the dangers of being in isolation a lot. But luckily she was someone who could, who had enough, uh, you know, social capital with me that she could say, hey, you know, there's something up with this. And she actually had a friend who was a therapist who actually ended up being my therapist, who is a fucking godsend. Was there at any point you thought you not eating was because I'm I'm just going back to autobiography of a yogi where it's like you have these yogis that don't eat. Did you ever think where it's like maybe this is Yeah, I had I had I had tons of misgivings about myself as some kind of special individual like accessing the fucking Akashic records and you know like my Kundalini's lit and I did I was I was doing it all. And the funny thing was all that is true too. But the problem was when I wasn't grounded, I wasn't grounded in proper, in a proper identity. Like I can engage in the highest spiritual practices and I'm very fond of them and I believe in them, but I'm also like a a meat sack and and with a mind. And I think I needed to get to the basics of being a human being and to understand um, my relation to time and space and food and, and, and routine and, and and my self-identity and my relationships with my parents and my, day-to-day practices with other people and how I approach work and coworkers. And I think I spent so much time in the, in the, in the high realm of spirituality that the real world practical applications of things weren't where they could be, which is weird because I was still getting good results to a certain extent, but I was, but more professionally than personally. Gotcha. So the good results were, weren't your personal it's not good it, it's you're indifferent but it's good because other people are like yeah this is great and we're gonna run yeah so it's like oh yeah 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 get married yeah have kids yeah buy a house it's like there is this pre-existing checklist and i was in the basketball broadcast where i was doing and i was like yeah you know get your own tv show um you know do sideline for a little bit uh do a little play-by-play then maybe you get jumped and then do some espn and then you jump to like you get your own team and just do a broadcast. And then I got the G League job. It's like, oh, now I got my own team, my own broadcast. And then like I lost that job. And fucking brought brought back. And then as you start questioning it, and you're like, yeah, man, those were a lot of markers that were set by the system. And really, all I did, all, the only reason I came here was to play. Uh, yeah. And it's so funny that you say that it was set by the system, but it was the system that you were not documented in. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, man. But we do have off a certain amount of autonomy, you know. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah. it, it, it falls on my lap too. But I mean, it's hard as a human being to recognize all this stuff. 
Yeah. Now, you, you've been gracious enough to, to lend me all of this time, and, and it's been an incredible conversation um, thus far from, from my side, hopefully on your side as well. But um, <laughs> I think I think I need to also get this question in before I forget. But in the vein too of talking about blessings and stuff, <clears throat> I want to know your perspective uh, and and how it was on your end when the Raptors won the championship. What was that um, like? Surreal. It was hard because, like, we were working so hard. And I'm talking about a lot of the people who work in the Toronto basketball industry. It was like the whole world descended upon Toronto for the finals. So, like, as much as you wanted to be a fan while it was happening, everybody had their responsibility, whether it was security, whether it was broadcast, whether it was whatever. So, like, it was like ESPN was there. Turner was there. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, everybody was there. So, like, all of our shows were getting watched. So, I think everybody was a little bit more stressed than usual. Um, it was surreal. It's hard to say that you got a chance to enjoy it, but I enjoy every time I remember it. Mm. You know, it was one of those ones where when you're living it, you're really living it. Time slowed down, but it was also like you're on the nice edge because, like, you know, I was on Kimmel. You wanted to look good when you went on stage with Kawhi and do the interview. You, wanted, you didn't want to stutter. You wanted to ask the right questions. You wanted to look good, right? Or, um, you know, saying like you were on CP24 the next morning, but you were out partying but you still want to make it a party with your friends and you want to party with the players, but you don't want to cross the line of media. And it's like, there's all this stuff that's like going on over the week and you're just having a time. And it wasn't, it really isn't until like, you know, like later on in the summer when I ran into one of my boys and he's like, yo, I was at the parade and I saw you on the float and you showed me this video of me like just acting the fool. And I'm like, oh yeah, we did that shit. That's dope, man. Yeah, that. <clears throat> That parade, I was in Vancouver at the time, so I missed all of it. But my boys were, were in that, and they were in the thick of it. And that was just yeah, energy. People died. Yeah. Or someone got shot at least, I think. Oh, I'm it was like, crazy. Yeah. I'm surprised. I don't know if this is just my, my projection onto Toronto, but I'm surprised that little happened like i i thought downtown was going to be a, a a riot zone by the end of it i but couldn't they, believe how many people came yeah that was that it was, was weird i was like what yeah so yeah. i'm scared for when the leafs win because they're just gonna burn the city down it's because there's a particular genre genre of people there's a particular uh type of people who watch hockey that tend to get rambunctious in those. Oh, yeah, they're called hockey players. <laughs> Jesus, those guys are rowdy. So going from this incredible high uh, and energy of, of the city and you having all of these responsibilities, what was the contrast then when all of a sudden everything went to the NBA bubble? Shoot, it's depressing. I mean, especially for our team, because our team, you know, yeah, yeah, we had the best fan base. We had a thing going. We were rolling. We still had Gasol and Abacha before they left. So, like, it was things looked good. And then the bubble really derailed it. But shouts out to the Raptors because they kind of found their strategy. I mean, it was, it, was, it was bad for us. Plus, we followed that up with another year in Tampa. So that sucked. And um, I think – and then the COVID – that 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 blue chunks. Yeah, yeah. Ugh. COVID. But man, Akil, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your insight and and your experiences as well. And do you have like a potential release date for? Well, we're trying to get the tips. So we're going to be, there's about 42 film festivals that we're applying to. We'll do a private screening here in Toronto in April. So if you're in a city, let me know. But um, uh, we're going to try and do the uh, festival um, route first. Nice. Dope. Awesome. I, and I got to give a shout out to Ryerson because they do have an incredible film program. And so I'm, I'm thrilled that you're working with 
these students because I remember when I first started um, acting and I was like looking for short films to like get myself into. Ryerson, like they've evolved a lot. <laughs> so um, It won't be Ryerson for very long. They have to change the school name. What? To what? I don't know if they're going to change it to, but Ryerson is one of the guys who started the whole, um, the what is it, the native school system that they the had? residential school system? The residential school system. He's one of the founding fathers of that. Why did so they're I gonna... not associate that Ryerson would be a last name? I just thought that'd be, a, ah. I thought Ryerson was just like a, a noun, like University of Toronto. You know, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a whole ass dude who owned a plot of land, started a yeah. school. He probably has a bigger story than that, but yeah, he's a controversial figure here in Canada right now. Oof. Yeah, that's that's a whole other other discussion, and I don't know if if you have any insight on it or or opinions on it, but maybe we can bring you back. But like immigration, oh, for you anytime, man. I got oh, you. Let's do this. That. But like immigration and and indigenous rights like i can get I, you some people too i know some people i got some homies out there um up north doing some good work in the community sweet awesome yeah no we we've had a couple of um indigenous activists come on here and then give us insight on the the climate of racism but i'm i want to dive more deep into the the world of like as you said undocumented where immigrants coming here they fall into the north american mindset and they just go with what you know the white man says so it's like colonizer philosophies right so it's like i i also want that to be brought to the forefront eventually where it's like if you're coming to this country and you're an immigrant understand that you know you don't have to become where you're going sure but that's a conversation of power yeah immigrants don't have a lot of power when they come in the power dynamic is severely thrown off yeah but then it's like with that you got to retain some power you got to retain some of that yeah definitely i definitely I definitely hold on to my Trinidadian roots for sure. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, man. Keel, thank you so much for coming out. You, you're thank you for doing this, man. You're, you're a light, and I, I wish you all the best with Undocumented, and I'll be following along on your socials for that. But yeah, thank you again, man. <laughs> gang, gang, let's go. Everybody, thank you for tuning in today for the Two Degrees Podcast, brought to you by the Play On Foundation. Akil Augustine, an incredible soul. Follow him, check him out, and as soon as Undocumented hits Netflix and Amazon <laughs> Prime and all of those streaming services, because I'm sure that it has a lot of legs to travel on, check that out. But other than that, be my fail. Thank you all for tuning in. Artwork by Monique Lizardo. Music by Kate Cole. If you enjoy the podcast, please like, subscribe, share, tag us, whatever all the fun things people do when they like something. But most importantly, check out www.letsplayon.org for the Play On Foundation and lend your voice in bringing awareness to the neurological research for brain aneurysm detection and prevention. My name's Javi. See you next time on the Two Degrees Podcast.